This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. It's also sponsored by Wink. Wink is offering our listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds and by NatureBox. NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off their first order when you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. It's so great. It's a CBO mug. Covers are the greatest hits. I feel like CBO has fallen off since the Peter Orzag days. Like a long time. Wait, that's I, a, I know. I thought the Doug Elmendorf era was a wonderful era. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined in the studio by my colleague Sarah Cliff. Hi, Matt. Um, hello. Ezra Klein, remarkably, is still on vacation. The basic foundations of the American Republic have crumbled ever since he, he left town. Um, so we have uh, Dylan Matthews sitting in. He is joining us, uh, you know, primarily we, we wanted to have him on to talk about uh, universal basic income. Uh, we did a, a Weeds in the Wild on this subject. Uh, Dylan has has talked about it before a little bit here. There's there's a lot of interest from, from readers. I don't think he's ever been on the podcast, though, to talk. Oh, he has. I think I've been on the oh, podcast did? Did exclusively to talk okay. about universal basic <laughs> <Sorry>. income. <laughs> yeah, it's I've been very... on three times and all three were about UBI. But people can't get enough. There's a bottomless it. interest in this subject. However... However, first, uh, the news does keep intruding a, a little bit on our on our policy uh, lifestyle. Um, initially, the news was going to be, what was it going to be? It was it was that Trump had leaked, yeah, information, classified information, information to, to the Russians. Uh, it turns out that was, uh, I guess, Israeli information. He's endangered the life of some um, highly placed uh, Mossad asset inside ISIS. Separately. James Comey uh, came out with the fact that he has been taking meticulous notes on his conversations with Donald Trump, including uh, one conversation in which Trump asked him if he couldn't maybe take the heat off Michael Flynn. And reportedly, there are like way more notes. And that seems to have, as far as I can tell, this is what has really sent Republicans on Capitol Hill scrambling for the first time, is the dawning realization that they don't actually know what it is exactly that they are being asked to help Trump cover up, right? And that, I mean, I guess on some level that's like always been clear, but but they're now recognizing that they can – in some sense, get behind an investigation, in which case whatever comes out, they helped uncover, or they're at risk of a situation where things like this Comey memo keep sort of landing on them across the back door in a way that surprises them and and wounds them all. Um, and that is what seems to be sort of getting getting wheels moving on, on Capitol Hill. I've, these events, unfortunately, move really too fast to discuss, even on a podcast timeline. <laughs> Um, but, but I, I do get a lot of questions from people about sort of legal ins and outs. Like, is this obstruction of justice to, to fire an FBI director? And, and Dylan, you, you had some good, uh, piece about, you know, the Nixon administration and, and that obstruction of justice. Well, can we start with like a very basic, like, like, let's just start the basics of what is obstruction of justice. Sure. So. I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> I feel the need to say. But you but play one on a podcast I play now. one on a podcast. Um, obstruction of justice relates to sort of 
trying to interfere with the investigation, trying to sort of uh, use power or or some other tool to to disrupt the normal flow of the justice process. So, like um, witness tampering is a form of obstruction of justice. I think in some places it's a separate charge. Also, um, I mean, a classic would be a boss at a company trying to use his power over employees to prevent them from cooperating. Right. With an investigation. Right, exactly. Um, or, like, if you're a mob boss and you're trying to, like, keep people from talking to the police or getting them to lie to the police, like... You're destroying documents. Or right. murdering them, perhaps. Right. But that's that, got some other charges. In many jurisdictions, murder is also a crime, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, um, but, but, uh, uh, but, yeah, so I... I've been scrambling to try to talk to criminal law experts about this since uh, since this news broke yesterday. Uh, Jimmy Grule, who is uh, an expert at Notre Dame Law School, who was assistant attorney general for George H.W. Bush and uh, undersecretary of Treasury for George W. Bush at the time when Treasury still had the Secret Service and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and did a lot of law enforcement stuff. So this is like a veteran conservative Republican federal law enforcement guy and his take was like unquestionably if this report is true trump is guilty of obstruction of justice like this is literally what the law is just by asking flynn to do this he's committed obstruction of justice or asking comey rather than flynn if he fired comey to like further this disruption of the flynn investigation that is also obstruction of justice and like i was surprised by how categorical he was about this now this is one guy like i have to do some more reporting on this but it seems pretty close to the legal definition. Obviously, like, it feels like we're in pretty uncharted territories and there's not a ton of precedent. But, like, where does it go from th- – I'm curious if they said, like, anything about where it goes from there and, like, if it's different because this is the president versus, like, if I, Sarah Cliff, were trying to stop, like, you know, Vox employees from participating in some investigation. Right. And so the, one of the reasons it's – Shocking is that it kind of is charted territory that that in another piece, I made the point that like a lot of people have this vague sense that Richard Nixon was forced out of office because he ordered the Watergate burglary. And we don't actually know if he ordered the Watergate burglary. We know that he like created a White House where his aides thought it was acceptable to break into political opponents like offices. Um, But the smoking gun, what what is literally referred to as the smoking gun tape, which came out on August 5th, 1974, caused Republican leaders in the House and Senate to go to the Oval Office and say, like, you are about to be impeached and, like, led him to resign was him telling his chief of staff that he wanted him to get the CIA to interfere with an FBI investigation uh, into the Watergate burglary. That the thing that was so shocking that people were like, this guy's presidency is over, is that he was interfering with an FBI investigation. The way he did that was different from how Trump appears to have done that, but they're quite similar. And and I think that's part of why this might be a tipping point. I mean, we've people have predicted that Trump's over for years months now and so it's it's hard to say for sure but but it is a sort of new level of thing as to what happens i think the prevailing view and this isn't unanimous but i think most the view of the justice department and the view of uh of most legal scholars is that the president cannot be indicted by a normal prosecutor that it's it's not like if if trump as he is 
threatened to do jokingly goes to to Fifth Avenue and shoots someone in the middle of the street that Cy Vance, the district attorney for Manhattan, can indict him and, and try him for murder. Most people think there's some kind of immunity that accrues to the president and that if the president has committed a crime, the way that you prosecute that is that the House indicts them through the impeachment process and then the Senate either votes to convict or acquit. This is why, incidentally, I, I think some of the um, defenses of Trump that you've seen, particularly on this classified information, where you see some people say, like, well, it's perfectly legal for the president to declassify whatever he wants. Um, it is, but that's in virtue of the president's inherent powers in case law, that it's just the way classification law works in the United States of America is legitimately, if the president does it, it's not a crime, um, which is simply to say that it is a question for the political branches of government to resolve whether the president is acting as an out-of-control maniac. Um, the president, in any president in principle, could just trade like all of America's classified information to a campaign donor for a $2,000 check. Probably you would want to do something about that. But but I mean, the point is, is that in the system that we have, these are really political issues. And so to use as your political response, well, it's not illegal, is really neither here nor there. I, I mean, it's interesting, as you were saying, in, in the hypotheticals, you could imagine a situation in which the president breaks a law that has like nothing to do with his governing authority. Like, what if he just like scooted up to Kramer books and like, pocketed a few hardcovers, right. snuck out. And then you might really want to say like, well, can't we have like a criminal sanction outside of the, the process? But what we're talking about with things like, you know, firing an FBI director to stymie an investigation into your campaign aides or abusively wrecking an intelligence relationship for God knows what reason in, in the Oval Office, you're talking about political misconduct, not judicial misconduct in a in a typical sense. And like, this is why members of Congress ultimately have to, I, I don't know how you want to put it, but like, decide what they want to do. There's there's not like an external answer that's going to tell them what they have to do. Right. And that part feels like pretty up in the air right now. Like we have not heard. I mean, we're taping this Wednesday morning and it's possible things will have changed and like however, you know, whenever you listen to this delightful podcast. But so far, it seems like a reticence on the part of congressional Republicans to, you know, discuss this at much length, which I think I know some people have been looking back kind of how things unfolded under Watergate and maybe like Dylan, like you've been looking a little bit at the historical analogy. I did think it was somewhat telling um, CBS on their morning news show on Wednesday said they asked 20 congressional Republicans and the White House to provide someone to come on the show and everybody declined. Just nobody wanted to be out discussing this. So it was interesting to see a, a reticence to you know, go out there and defend the president's actions. That being said, we also have um, Jim Risch, the senator from 
Idaho, you know, arguing that the real problem here is the person leaking information to the Washington Post. Like, that's what we should really be investigating. I think when he's talking to reporters on the Capitol, he, you know, asked, are any of you from the Post, like, you're the real problem, which is a somewhat, you know, surprising take on this. But I'm, I think this will certainly be a test of how much, you know, because I think on the one hand, congressional Republicans, like, would just like to, like, keep Trump in office so they can do, like, their Obamacare repeal, like, do their tax reform, like, have someone who isn't super concerned with the policy details sign off on the things that um, that they would like to pass. And that is, you know, I think we're about to learn how much they are willing to put up with and, you know, kind of defend in order to to keep that status quo and to keep that kind of rubber stamp in the White House that they they've really been kind of hoping for and expecting. And sort of like thinking through just the very real ways in which if this becomes an impeachment situation, it makes all the lives of these Republicans in Congress worse. Like not just politically, like the 1974 midterms were a bloodbath for Republicans because their president had just resigned in disgrace. But they want to pass a lot of legislation, and that takes a lot of time, as you know better than anyone from from covering the healthcare process. Um, they have to spend months hammering out this healthcare bill. If they somehow get that together, they need to spend months hammering out a tax reform package. And impeachment proceedings just completely consume Congress. That was one thing that sort of 1998 and 99 reminded us that just it you can't do anything else in the House and Senate while this is the main topic of business, and. So the question before them is, do you grudgingly tolerate this president the way that you always have because you want him to sign this legislation that's really important to you into law? Or do you waste, in your view, six months of the legislative calendar on this getting rid of him and then you'll have President Mike Pence for a little while before Democrats retake the House in the midterms? Like, why would you ever go for that? Well, but I think I, I mean, I do think that the, the the counter view that some people have to be considering is like, look, this is May. Um, is there some way to hustle Trump out of here fast, particularly because unlike in the Watergate precedent, right, we're in like the second or third week of high drama about this. And it's already just out there. Like the president told the FBI director, will you drop this investigation? Um, he didn't drop the investigation. Then he fired the FBI director. So the whole drama of like the Oval Office tapes and the litigation to get the tapes and the firing of the special prosecutor, like all that stuff that took months and months and months, you could presumably skip and basically just like pick up Monday with the Barry Goldwater goes to the Oval Office and like tells you you're cooked. I mean, I'm not saying that that will happen, but but you could imagine trying to say like, look, if we could just like draw a line under this Trump thing, then you get Mike Pence in place. You get over a year to legislate before the midterms. You get a situation where, you know, the map is just very favorable to Republicans. You could weather losses and hold a majority, even losing a majority, not the end of the world. Gerald Ford almost got reelected in 1976 under uh, what I have to say were really unfavorable objective circumstances versus if you want to keep like downplaying this and you're going to say like, well, we're going to try to work on this healthcare bill, but every Tuesday at 5 p.m. you're like rocked by some new set of weirdo revelations and Trump tweets, you know, so it's like what is really the 
most parsimonious way to get back to legislating? Is it to try to tune this all out? And this is what they've been hoping, right? I mean, for the first 110 days of the Trump administration, it's been sort of duck and cover, keep a focus on the legislative agenda, let a handful of House Republicans, your Devin Nunes's, your Chris Collins's, sort of like be the Trump surrogates on TV and just pray that Trump starts acting more in control. And I think that strategy has not succeeded. And well, it's, it's sort worth of reevaluating. So I would, I I don't think it's a great strategy, but like to stand up for the case that it worked. Like they managed to move a healthcare bill through the house in the swirl of all this craziness. And I think like one of the things you pointed out, Matt, is things have moved a lot faster. It's like literally every day now. It feels like there's some. You know, it was only, I think, 13 days ago that the House passed their health care bill. It was about a week ago that— Remember um, Sally Yates's blockbuster right, like, testimony? <laughs> like I things, don't even remember what she said. Exactly. Like, I cannot—like, uh, things have piled up so quickly. Like, there's no time for them to, like, simmer and unfold. Like, you know, we move so quickly from one thing to the When's next. When's that CBO score coming? Yeah, the CBO score is coming <laughs> next week. Um, you know, it, it feels like eons ago that we even, like, voted on the bill that, like, CBO is going to score. Um, and so I, I think there is a sense of, you know, at least, you know, when I was over in the Senate yesterday, like, a sense of just, like, still Buckle down, like, you know, let this stuff happen in the background, keep your legislative working group continuing and almost hoping that, like, the fast onslaught of things, you know, makes gives them less time to, like, percolate and stick and that it just becomes this, like, swirl. I, I don't know if that works, but I think you could actually look at the experience in the House for the first hundred days as a legislator and say, like, actually, like, yeah, it sounds kind of nuts, but but we were able to, like, do the legislative thing we wanted and, like, send a few people out there on TV and kind of, like, accomplish the the exact thing that we wanted. At the end of the day, we got a president to, you know, hold a Rose Garden ceremony for a policy that doesn't sound like is the one he thinks we passed, but, like, we were able to do the thing that that we wanted. So that's sort of like the chaos is a ladder theory of legislating. <laughs> yes. Right? Very popular. And, and I mean— in a sense, right? I mean, ACA polls so poorly, it might be to Republicans' interest to have public attention on the president endangering the lives of Israeli intelligence officials rather than endangering the lives of Americans with pre-existing medical conditions. So if we're thinking about fast ways to get Trump out of office and get Congress back to its its business – should we talk about the 25th Amendment? No, I don't want to. You don't want to? <laughs> <laughs> it's, too, it's too weird. No, okay, let's go through the, that's Let's go through it. Let's go through it. Okay. The 25th Amendment you is— You the Pandora's box, Dylan. The 25th Amendment has a bunch of provisions, but the relevant one is that it, it seems like what was written in mind here is the idea that the president might like have a stroke or as as happened to Woodrow Wilson and become semi incapacitated like it was it was written after the Kennedy assassination and everyone was worried that he would have been like paralyzed and like brain dead but not dead dead right. and like no one had any idea what would have happened if that was but i mean so like what specifically happened with Wilson right was Wilson had a stroke he was incapacitated and his wife and his chief of staff essentially took advantage of the situation to run the government themselves that 
rather than have Wilson step down and his vice president assume power, people who were just close to Wilson personally sort of ruled in his name, using the president's still beating heart as like a a totem of office. So they created a mechanism whereby the cabinet could involuntarily remove the president for office by having a a majority of the cabinet plus the vice president have to like send a a certified letter to to coin a term uh, to the congressional leadership saying like the president can't do it and then the vice president becomes acting president and then things get weird right so at that point the the expectation is that the president won't contest it because he's a vegetable at this point but if the president isn't a vegetable say if he's just like telling secrets (laughs) to russians a lot and like firing fbi directors and whatever then the president can contest it and my understanding is at that point it requires two-thirds two-thirds of each house to to validate that he's been kicked out of office so what strikes me as odd about this when it enters the discussion is just like mathematically the 25th amendment sets a higher bar than the impeachment process So there's no circumstance in which deploying a contested 25th Amendment removal would make more sense. I mean, Ross Douthat has this column, which is it's it's thought provoking in it's like advocacy of the symbolism of the 25th Amendment route rather than the impeachment route. And like, how should we understand the metaphysics of like what's wrong with Donald Trump? But just like by the numbers, you are going to get to impeachment and removal no, but one before thing you get to 25th No, but one Amendment. thing that might be different about it is just like, if you have like the cabinet coming out saying like, we don't trust this person to be president, that gives Congress a lot of cover to say, okay, yeah, like we... We agree with like I think it sets up a different political d- dynamic, right. right? But but again, to that bar, right? So the twenty fifth amendment bar is you need half of the cabinet, so that would be like eight cabinet secretaries. If you had seven cabinet secretaries <laughs> come out and say we believe the president's incapacitated and should be removed from office, that that would give Congress a lot of political Fair. cover too, right? Fair. You don't really need the eighth, and it sort of depends who the cabinet secretaries are, but like. Tomorrow, if Jim Mattis stepped out in front of the cameras and was like, guys, Donald Trump's continuation in office is a threat to America's national security, like Trump would be toast. I don't know. Not by like a – it's not a question of the constitutional mechanism, but like that's the the political bargain that congressional Republicans themselves – made with the country was that a certain number of these Trump cabinet officials were the guarantors that this was all going to be okay. If those people say it's not okay, like, that's the end of their position. But the 25th Amendment is also faster. So, like, if you're going through impeachment, like, Donald Trump stops being president after, like, five or six months of impeachment proceedings. If you invoke the 25th Amendment, he stops being president, like, right now. And then, like, you have some some time to, to confirm that, and he might get back to it. But, like, like if you just, like, want to get him out of office, <laughs> like, like it's a much... It's a much m- Wait, and is the expectation in the... Sorry, I'm less of a 25th Amendment aficionado as you guys, but is the expectation that the vice president serves out the entire... God, that's like a long t- like it, it feels like very not thought through like you were saying dylan for this situation that you know they would serve an entire because that's basically a pence presidency yeah at that point i mean 
John Tyler uh, took office before this point in, in the presidential cycle in, in 1841 and served out a full term. People weren't happy about it. He was the first vice president to become president. But like, I think that's that's the system we have. Well, one of the big problems with America, it seems to me, is that we we tend not to like kick the tires of these constitutional provisions until after something terrible happens like we all know that the like what if there's no electoral college majority process is like a disaster that makes no sense and 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 nobody will defend it but also no one will like do anything about it and so like someday this will come up and you have a similar thing with the 25th amendment right like there should probably be if if you have some chaotic removal of the president like there should probably be a special election at some point like that's how we handle things normally and normal countries handle things normally um and like we just we just don't because it's not i just feel like a a lot of these things are are not done really really carefully with terms of thinking like what would we actually want to do if we just went through an unprecedented political crisis would we really just want to all say like okay mike pence is president now because of all the midwestern republican governors he's the one who was so unpopular that he was willing to take the job like he's he's not someone democrats like he's not He's Republicans think he's fine, but he's like not the standard bearer they want either. And this is how we got Gerald Ford as president. And it's a little ridiculous. Well, Gerald Ford was weird in that he he had previously been confirmed by the House and Senate because he had, he had been appointed vice president right. because the, the previous vice president resigned in disgrace. I mean, there's there's something about this process that I like, which is that, like, I don't think if the president commits a crime that should give the other party control. Um, like the way that parliamentary systems solve this is just like in this situation, if it were Great Britain, then like Pence or Paul Ryan would do a leadership challenge and presumably the rank and file of the party would would rally around a non-Trump candidate and then like the winner would immediately become prime minister instead. Right. Um, in Australia, they call it a spill. Oh, it's a good that's term. fun. Yeah, it's very fun. You know, learning new things is something I'm really interested in. If you listen to The Weeds, you're probably interested in it, too. And with The Great Courses Plus, I get unlimited access to learn about anything I want. History, economics, psychology, how to improve my photography, how to improve my chess game. They've got this amazing library of over 8,000 lectures presented by award-winning experts. Now, you can stream these courses from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, and TV. Uh, the Great Courses Plus is a brand new course that, that I strongly recommend, America's Founding Fathers. This course was created in partnership with the Smithsonian, and it shows you about, you know, the the beginnings of the country and and the founders' quest for liberty. Um, It it turns out that, you know, uh, the the Hamilton musical is amazing, but not like the comprehensive guide to history that that you might want. Uh, You can see uh, a little bit more what what the whole Hamilton-Bird dispute was was sort of really about and and what it personified. Uh, It's been great. I've been enjoying it. And if you sign up for The Great Courses Plus as a listener of The Weeds, you can watch it and you can watch any of their courses for free for one whole month by using our special URL, thegreatcourses.com courseplus.com slash weeds. You get your free month. You're going to love it. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Should we let's, let's talk about something we would want to think through in depth, think through well if we were to set it up in the United States? For example, a universal basic that's, income. That's the one, Matt. Okay. So, you know, say Donald Trump is not president anymore. He's out on the streets. It's unemployable. Should the government just like give him free money? 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk to you. So we, Dylan and I did this Weeds in the Wild episode um, on Friday, which you should certainly listen to if you haven't. It is um, about 15 minutes long, and I found it super interesting about the reporting you've been doing, Dylan, in, um, in Kenya about this Give Directly pilot. And maybe if you want to kind of just, like, talk through, you know, people haven't listened to that episode yet, um, kind of, like, what are some of the big questions they're exploring there like what are the things like you came out of visiting kenya thinking about we actually have a few questions that readers sent us through our facebook group that we're going to get to in a little bit but like kind of like what what are the things you that keep you up at night about ubi these days oh man um so just as as brief background give directly is a charity that does direct cash transfers to people in kenya traditionally it's done them in sort of lump sums of like seven or eight hundred dollars um and so it gives a bunch of money to people all at once and then sort of moves along. Um, they're currently experimenting with doing uh, cash delivery through a basic income model where instead of getting one fell swoop of money, you'd get money every month. Uh, and they're specifically doing this big experiment uh, with sort of 18,000 people total, 6,000 of whom are, are getting a full basic income where they're going to be giving every adult in a bunch of villages uh, $22 a month every month for the next 12 years. So this is a big deal. It's the first sort of fully universal, no phase out, no one excluded basic income trial anywhere so far as I, I can tell. Um, it's very large. It's very long term. So you can see sort of long term effects as people sort of expect to rely on this money over many years. And and I think there it raises a lot of interesting questions. Um, it's a very different environment than the U.S., where in rich countries, when you think about basic income, a lot of the debate revolves around, is this going to discourage people from working? In the village I went in Kenya, something like 50 to 60 percent of people weren't working. There just aren't jobs. There aren't firms that are hiring people. It's a lot of subsistence agriculture. And so – a lot of the questions instead are are about insofar as it relates to economic growth, like will people use this as startup capital to build new enterprises, start new businesses? Will that help regional growth? Will that sort of compound into something bigger? And sort of barring that, will this sort of help ameliorate some of the concrete suffering in, in those ways? It's worth dwelling on, on, on this difference a, a little bit because I do think people engage in a kind of a, a slippage here. But we're really asking – two quite different questions, right? I mean, if you proposed a $22 a month basic income for the United States, I think like one big reaction would just be like, why bother at all? Like it's so little, you know, you, you normally don't have like a big political fight to create a giant new universal program that would have 300 million beneficiaries, but give them all almost no money. That would just be a, a weird thing to do, but it's a lot of money. In the context of rural Kenya, right? Right. It's and, literally the poverty line. Right. And, and then the, the other thing is that in the United States, to the, the emotional case and intellectual case for basic income starts with the premise that the United States is a wealthy country and it's like a shame to have some people be so poor in a country that clearly has the resources, whereas Kenya is a poor country and some of the individuals within that country are unusually poor. But broadly speaking, you would say that like Kenya suffers from a, a deficit of economic resources. And so a question that people are interested in is like, can you induce more 
prosperity by doing this? Or would it be, I mean, a traditional aid model would be like, well, we need to build like a bridge or, you know, some kind of some kind of a project. And so the, the question on the table here is like, look, if we're going to do something to help Kenyans, maybe the best thing to do is like, find needy people or needy areas, go give them all money. Whereas in, in America, nobody is quite wondering, like, if we give unemployed single mothers a small amount of cash will that cause them to will that like power growth for the american economy it's much more like they'll buy their kids diapers and that'll be good on its own terms right right no one proposes ubi in the u.s as sort of a growth driving mechanism it's like a pure redistributive thing whereas in in poor countries it fits into this debate and sort of set of ideas that's been floating around for like 20 years, which is how do you get capital into poor countries? Like a lot of people have diagnosed the problem and, and lack of growth in these countries and that you're sort of in this catch-22 where people need to start enterprises and start hiring people and selling to people. It's hard to do that unless you have initial money to get those going, but no one wants to invest because there aren't enterprises that are like creating jobs and creating a return on their investments. And so you're, you're sort of stuck in this, this vicious cycle. Um, microfinance was sort of a hot way to try to get around this problem like 10 or 12 years ago. And I think sort of the prevailing view in the development world is that was kind of a bust. Um, like it, it was tried and, and didn't sort of have the the growth effect. And microfinance essentially like giving like these small cash grants to right. individuals. It's like a more traditional banking model, but just like small amounts to, in small villages. So it's like sort of trying to expand access to, to borrowing to, to people in these areas. And so part of the idea of making it loans was that you would – for it would say you can get this money, but you would basically you would have to be using the money to finance a productive investment because otherwise you wouldn't be able to repay the loan. Right. Whereas on a UBI model, it's like in theory, every single person who gets the $22 could spend all of that money on buying imported cigarettes. Right. And and so microfans ran into all these problems where like to do it and like break even, not even break up, make a profit, you have to charge like really high interest rates because these are super risky loans that you're making. And so like it was kind of onerous for the people getting it and and sort of the, the firms doing it wanted to both be charities that got a lot of philanthropic money from Westerners, but also wanted to break even. Um, and so, yeah, this is sort of cutting that part out and saying like, look, we're going to lose money. Uh, as donors, like this is not a business enterprise. We're just going to give you cash and and you can invest it. And and this has worked in a lot of contexts. Uh, there was a really remarkable study in Nigeria where it was it was sort of like a business idea competition um, and people submitted plans for their businesses and the winners got like a really large amount of money. I think it was like over $10,000. I'd have to double check. And the results were like incredible. Like people have talked about this as as the most successful uh, development intervention anyone has tried. Um, sort of huge, huge returns on investment, huge increases in employment in areas that got this grant. Um, and so there's a lot of hope in these these cash transfers as a way to, to spur growth. And so one thing that the give directly was trying to figure out is like is basic income the best way to deploy that cash since you're you're both giving it to people who want to start a business and to other people um and you're also sort of giving it in smaller amounts whereas giving bigger amounts might give 
people resources they need to buy like a rickshaw or, or some other uh, piece of equipment that that helps them build their firm. So I know a lot of your reporting, Dylan, and you spend a lot of time thinking about like international aid and like what is the best way to deploy resources. And I know you're generally a fan, like anyone can tell from your writing that you're a fan of like giving what? people no. money directly, for example. <laughs> like you mentioned your article, like you've been a donor to them before. Yeah. So that's not like Yes, new, you're not new- talking out of school. Yes. <laughs> um, this is all on Vox.com. But I'm curious like how that shapes your thinking of like like what the role is for things both in the US like and in international companies for like the bridge building or the health insurance programs or like these things that people just you know, are very, very challenging to do on your own, like where your thinking is right now after spending a lot of time researching and reporting on these issues of how those should fit into international aid and like what like what do you think, like given all the research you've done is like the right balance between like giving people money directly versus like saying, okay, like your village needs a bridge or a well or a school and like we're going to decide like that is the best thing we could do with our money. Right. So, like, I should be totally clear. Like, cash is not a replacement for public goods. Like, there are some things that you just need in a society that need to be done by the government and can't sort of – the reason we have governments is that people aren't good at doing them on their own. Like, people aren't good at building roads privately. I'm sure there are some anarcho-capitalists who will email me and give an example of how in medieval Iceland they they built roads perfectly fine. But that are – In medieval Iceland, they privatized law enforcement. They, they did, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of emails from members of r slash anarcho-capitalism about how, how you don't actually need government to do any of this stuff, but you do. Um, and, and there are other cases of like market failure where just like an unregulated market does not function properly, the healthcare being sort of a canonical example. Um, so the, like there are some libertarians who just want to cash out everything and replace it with with a cash grant to people. So like Michael Tanner at Cato wants to get rid of Medicare and Medicaid and and replace it with a grant. And like I think that's crazy. Like there's no amount of of basic income that is going to replace like chemotherapy treatments for someone um and and there also isn't for like social insurance programs like social security like all basic income proposals i've seen are way less generous than than social security or unemployment insurance or or sort of true social insurance programs so like i don't think you should get rid of any of that stuff at all i think the hard problem in a place like kenya is that a lot both the government and past NGOs have not been very good at building those public goods. Like efforts to build schools and build health clinics have pretty mixed results. Not all of them. Like I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, but like the schools in Kenya are not good. And like it's really hard to make good schools in a developing country context. And when you're saying like good, the metrics you're thinking about are like Like do they teach you to read? Okay. Like do they teach you to do math? Yeah, Lane Pritchett has a, a lot of good good research on the sort of growth of I guess you would call it like pseudo education in developed countries where like they have schools and people go there, but no one appears to be learning anything. And I think broadly, I mean, it's, you know, these things are challenging from an administrative standpoint. I mean, we take for granted that like there are high schools in every town in America and that you could build another one if you wanted to. And it might have some problems, but like it would basically work. Uh, But it's not like a totally trivial issue in a country where you don't have a rich ecosystem of roads that work well and high schools that function basically okay to just add another one. 
Right. And and this leads to sort of tough controversies. There's this this for-profit education provider called Bridge Academies that recently got asked to take over all of Liberia's school system. And it's really loathed by a lot of education people because it's total rote learning. It's like there is a script that you get as a bridge teacher and you recite it at your students and like there is no interactivity um, and and it's just sort of horrifies a lot of, of teachers. It also like teaches you to read and do math. And a lot of these schools in developing countries do not. And I think the argument of bridge is like, well, like, what's your alternative? Like, like, no, we are not giving people the kind of rich primary education experience that you get in a rich country. No one else is either. Um, and so it's it's a lot of these sort of tough trade-offs. And I think part of the argument for cash is, like, foreigners and aid agencies have tried to help in a whole lot of other ways, too. And and it hasn't worked out great. And And also that there are ways you can give cash that – people in local communities can decide how to use it for public good. So like Kennedy, who is the village elder in the village I, I visited, was saying that he wanted um, he wanted to do it voluntarily. He kind of had a taxation as theft worldview. Um, but he he wanted to get everyone to pool some of their basic income money so that they could build like a water pipeline to Lake Victoria or um, an electrical connection to a nearby town, just sort of building infrastructure things for, for public gain. And I think his view was that it's easier to do that if they have money and can, as a community, decide how to use it than if someone had come in and just built it. But and you're almost advocating for, like, the Icelandic, like, well, privatization I think, here. Like, I think even if you do it as taxation, right, like, there's a, there's a theory that if you have a smaller group, right, so it's like it's a village, it's a defined number of people, they mostly know each other, they definitely know the village leader. And if he says, look, we should all give up two dollars of our twenty two dollars and we're going to build a water pipe people might say okay that sounds reasonable but now if that guy fucks up and like the pipe doesn't get built like he's in big trouble because there is this accountability like he took your actual money versus if the like NGO, the or, right yeah. if, the, if the world bank helicopters in and is like we're going to build this water pipe then even if the pipe never gets a drop of water to the village at least some people will have like gotten some contracts or stolen some money or you know there's right. like some stakeholders some winners nobody lost anything except opportunity cost there's no accountability versus if the money has to be collected from individuals then like you have to show something right. for it i think that's yeah. like one of the things i'm really curious about with the give directly experiment is like how if people are interested in like pooling their money for public goods because like you know you talk to people like Jacqueline this woman who you know has two kids who probably is a third kid by now because she's she pregnant yeah. when you interviewed her um like if she is going to say like yeah you know what like I'm gonna give up like two dollars like take it away from school fees like take it away from like the food I'm buying because my husband's sending me very little money um you know and I'm gonna put that towards you know a water pipe or whatever sort of public project I mean I think that's Working in such like an impoverished area, a really like a question. It seems like we don't know the answer to in like a long term. Um, Should we do one of these reader questions? Yeah, let's 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 listen to this. Before we go, I I just want to clarify like it is super important for the kenyan government to build bridges and water like i am not an (laughs) anarcho-capitalist like my point is just matt's that like 
if you're an outside agent that is not acting on behalf of the Kenyan people and has no accountability to them, like, it's just tough. Wink. Uh, you guys know Wink. Uh, it used to be Club W. Now it's called Wink. It's, it's a great new design. It's, it's a great new product. What it's all about is it's about customized wine recommendations being shipped directly to your house. It hooks you up with, with innovative, affordable bottles of wine that you are going to love. Uh, the, the, the pitch you know they want you to think about right now, because we've been talking about Wink for a long time, is Mother's Day. Uh, you know It's hard to come up with good gifts, uh, but Wink could be a really great one. It could be a, a Wink membership that gets personalized wines for your mom shipped right to her door, or it can be something like a beautiful gift box. Uh, they've got great stuff out there that's, you know, it's thoughtful, it's personal, but it's going to be useful. And and one of the great things about Wink is that, you know, by its nature, it's always personalized so that, you know, your mom, if you get this stuff for her, she's going to wind up with wine that she likes, not with wine that you are vaguely trying to guess that she likes, uh, which, is, which is really, really, really helpful. They partner with different winemakers all around the world, so there's all kinds of stuff in their selection. Uh, but if you go onto their website, trywink.com, you can take a brief palate quiz, and they're going to add to their whole kind of library of different grapes, different vintages that they have to offer. They're going to recommend interesting wines that are customized to what you like. You don't need to be a wine expert. You just need to be able to, you know, speak about, about what kind of flavors and what kind of tastes you have. Uh, so you're going to get stuff that's customized to you like you might from a really high-end place with really, really expensive bottles. But you're going to get it in an affordable price because they're working directly with with winemakers and cutting out the middleman. Uh, and so right now, they're offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash weeds. They even cover the cost of shipping. Uh, you know, I can tell you it's it's just it's really great and convenient to have a box show up full of wine that you know that you're going to like, but that you haven't tried before. So that's trywink, spelled T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash weeds to get $20 off your first order now, plus complimentary shipping, trywink.com slash weeds. We, we got some some great questions from from Weeds fans through the Facebook group. Uh, one of them for, from Nick Bentley said something that I know, Dylan, you mentioned me before. A lot of people have asked you about. And, and he's saying basically, you know, if everybody gets a guaranteed minimum income, doesn't that just push prices back up and sort of leave everybody in a sense back? Back where they where they were to begin with, um, and and I I wonder what you, that strikes me as something that's probably quite context dependent. That like in an, in the U.S., if we're talking about a poverty alleviation scheme for a relatively small number of people, it doesn't. I don't see why it would have a large impact on prices, but. I don't actually have any idea how the rural Kenyan economy works. If everybody gets $22 a month, does that just mean consumer goods in town are going to get way more expensive? So this is something that GiveDirectly is studying. They're doing a, a what they call a general equilibrium study in a in a certain district to see sort of how prices of various goods respond. Um, I doubt it. Like, I think a lot of the food isn't that local and is shipped in and so might not the cost might not be super sensitive to to sudden shocks to cash in in local areas um also a lot of people are saving the money um for certain things so like Jacqueline's saving most of her money for school fees like that's not going to bid up prices at the food market necessarily um in a rich country context like i think inflation is what janet yellen says it is right um and this isn't that different from using government funds to pay for any other program um so i mean you know in a 
place where you're talking about a very low level of participation in the formal labor market here. And a certain amount of inflation could be constructive in that sort of situation, right? I mean, if there's I, I don't know. I, I don't want to construct like a totally ignorant hypothetical. Sure. But but you imagine there's some kind of good that like only one person has one of in town. You know, it's a, a electricity people are using to charge their phones or it's a motorcycle. They yeah, can, there's a school with with solar panels. That's the one place you can charge your phone. Right. So you could imagine the price of some particular scarce thing going up quite a bit if people get an extra infusion of cash. But then that becomes the reason to invest in creating a second one of them. Right. That it's not like impossible to have another rickshaw in town, but like no one's going to do it unless people have the money to pay. And there would have to be an adjustment period in which the like local monopolist jacks up the prices. And so the you know the the whole optimistic development story here would have to be that like it is possible for more capital goods to get to town but people would need the money to acquire them and that by raising the demand raising the prices you sort of get it get things moving a little bit right i i think that's that's probably right and and so what would initially happen is the school would probably get some more solar panels so that they can get more customers at the new high prices you, because like their their fixed costs wouldn't increase if there was a, a sudden increase in demand and so they could jack up prices and just that's pure profit um and then if they do that enough and like people see how lucrative this is for them then they'll save up their basic incomes over a period of months invest in in their own panel business, get a competition going. Um, and a lot of people are, are using the money to, to start their own businesses that will sort of compete in these markets. And so like there's a woman named Benta who I talked to who's who's expanding a greenhouse that she has to, to grow tomatoes. Um, and tomatoes, I think, are too expensive for a lot of the people in this town. And so you sort of sell them on a regional market. And, and so the price of tomatoes isn't going to be sensitive to this experiment necessarily, um, but she's she'll get a lot more income from that. And and so anyway, it's it's a complex regional economy, and it's it's sort of hard to extrapolate from these micro cases. But I I am not as fatalistic as a lot of people are about this, and I certainly think as a matter of national policy, like this is something central banks and like a decent tax system can handle pretty well. And like one of the ideas you raised there, that's kind of interesting. This isn't about inflation. But it's kind of like a middle ground between like doing a water line and like paying your school fees is like whether you see some of this income, like going to people kind of banding together to like build a business that even with their own basic income, they probably couldn't. But, you know, with like four or five people's basic income, or I think you wrote about in your story, like a group of 10 people who are going to. Inve- was it invest their money together or kind of like try and scale it, not to the entire village, but like right. in a smaller so it was, way? I think it was like 12 people. And the idea is they each month they pull, I don't know if it's all of their basic income, half their basic income, put it together. And then one person that month gets all the money. And then the next month, the second person in line gets it. And that they're going to keep doing this for all 12 years. And so that you on a regular schedule, like once a year, get this sudden burst of lots of money instead of like a lot of trickles. And so it's it's sort of – it's an interesting piece of financial innovation to, to sort of try to – I feel like there's going to be some big infighting in that group. I don't know. It feels like a hard (laughs) thing to, like, stick with. But you want to do another one of these? Let's do it. I like the one from um, Keith Morse that he sent us, who was asking um, 
could instituting UBI allow for a repeal of minimum wage laws? He says he's seen this tossed around in libertarian circles. Um, so I guess like there, there are two ways in which it would substitute for a minimum wage law. So there's the minimum wage laws try to reduce poverty. And, and so I think some of that purpose would be accomplished by a, a, a basic income. And the other thing is that minimum wage laws, I mean, not that much and we don't know how much, but like, I think part of the attraction for some people on the left is that they reduce, uh, labor supply and because of that bid up wages and i think basic income we don't know how much again and i think like the effects on work might be more modest than people expect Uh, but if it does discourage people from working then in response to that employers to get the same number of workers are going to bid up wages to get people to work again and so it has a similar sort of depresses labor supply raises wages effect that that some people might find attractive um I think, you know, more in like a a values context. I mean, I think I, like a lot of people, am torn between two intuitions. One is that like if there's a guy who has no job and there's another guy who would like to pay him $7 to do an hour of work, it's a little perverse for the government to be like, no, you can't do that. You have to – this guy has to just like not get your $7, that there's, you know, a basic like freedom – like adult human beings should have a default presumption that they can do what they want if they're not hurting other people and that the minimum wage while it does a lot of good things like it it violates that but then on the flip side there's the reality that the labor market is only quasi voluntary because in practice in a capitalist society you will be starving and homeless if you don't participate in it and so you know it gives the people who own the means of production a systematic uh, leverage over, you know, capital poor workers, right? And universal basic income does a, at an appropriately generous level, does a lot to reduce the coerciveness of participating in the labor market. And that then it seems to me might license a much more libertarian approach to how it works where you're still looking at look like safety concerns you know basic prudential type things but not having the situation i mean i mean i often think there's something odd about the fact that like columbia university can charge you like 50 bajillion dollars to waste time in their journalism master's degree but like you can't just like work for cheap at vox.com and like learn a thing or two um we pay our interns full minimum wage, total compliance with the law. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, but so it's like I get why there's all this labor market regulation in the United States. Like it it would be naive to really treat this all as like purely voluntary transactions. But to actually like address that by guaranteeing everybody a minimum subsistence rather than uh, sort of through the back end where it's like – to, to me, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know. It, it, seem, it seems very compelling to me that it's like, look, if the government is giving you money every month and like you're not starving, you're not homeless, you're not desperate for medical care, and also you decide that like all things considered, you would like to take this $7 an hour job, like good for you. Yeah. Um, and this is something that so Charles Murray, who's probably the most famous libertarian defender of basic income, who's not 
fond of poor people uh likes to argue he uh he had this debate at intelligence squared where his like main pitch for basic income was in in a world where everyone gets basic income it's okay to yell at people for being screw-ups that if your friend is like a drunk who like won't get a job or can't hold a job and just like waste time playing video games that now like People think you're being insensitive if you yell at them and tell them to shape up. But in a basic income world, they have no excuse and you can be super mean to them. And like, I find this a vaguely dystopian vision of how I want to distance myself a little (laughs) (laughs) of like how civil society should work. But like, I think there is a sort of libertarian temptation of like, like basic income creates a world where it's acceptable for us to treat poor people the way we would like to treat poor people. I mean, I, I guess I would say with all this, though, it it is extremely sensitive to, like, what kind of a bit – like, how much income are you actually talking about? You know, I mean, I think it's it's – people like to talk in, like, broad concepts, but, you know, a universal basic income of $6 a year is a lot more similar to having no <laughs> universal basic income than to, like, an incredibly generous one. To simply say, well, we have this program is, like – um, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. Right. And I think this is part of my frustration with when people use it as an answer to like automation fears. Right. Like, like Andy Stern, uh, who has been on the weeds to talk about this, is, makes this argument that, that after all the jobs go away, you need a basic income to make sure people get by. But if you're like a truck driver making 80 grand a year, like you're a senior truck driver and then your job gets automated away and the government says, good news. You, you and your wife are each going to get $12,000 a year from the government. Like that's good. Right. Like the correct answer is like, no, go fuck yourself. Like it's not an actual answer right. to the and problem. This, I mean, this comes back to like the minimum wage question. It's like, I think actually like the crucial thing is like, what are, what are people actually getting? Cause presumably like the point, like, you know, I think like, some of the stuff you were saying, Matt is you're trying to make sure like people are not being exploited. They can actually like live on the job that they're doing and it still seems very plausible especially with the type the amount of basic income that tends to get discussed in the US which would be probably a very significant pay cut for folks whose jobs were automated it's unclear like whether whether that's going to be enough to like continue right like, i mean a poverty subsisting. alleviation program would be good in the sense that it would alleviate poverty right. but it's not a solution to middle class people's angst about the future because the angst is not will i be like ending up just barely above the poverty line is the thing people are afraid of right whereas like if you are well below the poverty line being lifted up to a little bit above is like a big win but that isn't most people so you need a like general economic policy for most people as well as a poverty amelioration policy for the minority of people who are worst off right that actually sort of transitions nicely to to the last question which is from jackson kernian um uh who asks uh could the u.s implement a ubi by simply augmenting the earned income tax credit and what are the, the answer is no the answer is i mean if you augment it out of recognition, you could. <laughs> no, so the, 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 the idea of earned income tax credit, right, is that it's a kind – it's a little bit implemented in an odd way. But it is to like give you a bonus for going out, getting a job and earning money. Then it phases out at a certain point so that it doesn't cost 
a fortune. But the idea is that for people at the lower end of the labor market, the more hours you work and the more labor income you bring in, you get a bigger check from from the government. And so it's supposed to encourage people to work. Right. It's Which is the, the opposite. opposite right. The opposite effect. Yeah. And there was there was a good paper by Jesse Rothstein about this where he estimated that because of that sort of EITC prob- encourages people to go into the labor force, that probably lowers wages a bit. Um, and so people maybe get a 73 cent raise from every dollar you spend on EITC, whereas he estimates that you get maybe like a buck 29 from a negative income tax as a version of basic income because you're depressing labor supply and forcing companies to, to raise wages. Like, I think the way this works, the augmenting is like not te- like giving it to people who are not working as much, which is basically right. changing the entire structure of the tax credit. Well, and also like the way it exists now is it like mostly exists to make the tax rate on on the first income you earn zero. So like now you have this 15.3% Social Security Medicare tax that everyone pays starting at dollar zero. And their income tax credit mostly is just refunding you those payroll taxes so that there isn't an active tax rate on, on low earnings. Um, Ro Khanna, who's a freshman congressman from California, has a super ambitious plan to change the phase in from like 15.3 percent of those sort of payroll tax rate to like 70 or 80 or 90 percent and with great like triple or quadruple the maximum benefit you can get extend the the income that you can get a large benefit from into like the fifty, sixty thousand dollar a year range. And like that would be, like Matt was saying, like an answer to the overall economy. Like that is an answer to middle class people have not been getting raises for a long time. It is not an answer to sort of there are desperately poor people who can't work or don't work and like we want them to not be poor anymore. And, and this speaks to again, I mean, you know where we started, but just like the difference in situation between Africa, where you have poor countries, really poor regions, and like are looking at different ways to create some kind of economic ladder that like anybody can get on. And the United States, where you have a poverty is a very serious problem in the United States, but it impacts and it impacts a ton of children. But in terms of like healthy, able-bodied you know prime age people it's not super mainstream phenomenon right you're talking about poverty in the united states is largely people who can't work or who are having like real problems connecting with a labor market that exists and are in need of a a, a, they, they need help you know, and they continue to need help. You have poverty even in very prosperous metropolitan areas, for example. And so you're talking about can we design tailored solutions to get money to people who need it, which is different from we also have questions about economic growth in the United States, but I think they're seen as as much, much, much more distinct. Whereas if you have very poor countries, the question of like how do you help neediest cases and how do you create any kind of economic development at all have a much more intimate sort of link. Right. And I think the most interesting places to be looking at the future of basic income are sort of on neither extreme of the spectrum. They're sort of developing middle income countries or countries with a lot of 
like mineral or natural wealth. So like a country like like Nigeria or Angola that's like quite poor in like the the bottom third of the income distribution. I don't know if that's exactly right, but like they're they're pretty poor. Like but they also have like a lot of oil. Um, you have like fiscal capacity for the government that greatly outstrips how rich the average person is. And so you can do sort of an oil for cash program the way Alaska does or the way like Kuwait has done sometimes and just distribute the dividends to that to people. And you could fund like a very large basic income that could like probably wipe out extreme poverty in those countries. And then the other cases are countries like India where – you do have a taxing ability and you can sort of do large programs and you do have some attempts right now to alleviate poverty through sort of convoluted subsidy schemes. They have something called the public distribution system. They have like a kerosene subsidy so that you can sort of use ovens and it's all sort of famously leaky. The Indian government estimates that for the, the food system, 36% of the funds don't go to anyone at all. They're just sort of graft. 36% go to rich people and 28% go to poor people. And so the Indian government is thinking about getting rid of that and a bunch of other systems and replacing it with a super modest $4 per person per month basic income, which they estimate would cut the poverty rate from 22% to 7%. So like that's a huge big idea that would affect 1.2 billion people. And I think like that's kind of the frontier of where things are going. Everybody snacks. Snacking happens. It's a reality of life. And if what you have, you know, around when you want a snack is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. Uh, but you can start snacking healthier and better with NatureBox. They make high-quality snacks that taste great and they're better for you because they're made with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners so you can feel good about snacking. Uh, personally, I like the Fuji apples. I like the dried white peaches. To be a little bit more indulgent, uh, they've got some some really good Kung Pao pretzels. Um, but there's a there's a lot of good stuff out there, and they've made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you cancel uh, whenever you want to. Uh, so it's simple. You go to naturebox.com. You check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from, and they're always adding new things. They deliver them right to your door. You never get bored. There's new snacks each month, and it's inspired by real customer feedback. Even better, if you ever try something you don't like, they will replace it for free. Uh, so right now, you can save even more. They're offering our fans 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. That's naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. Okay. Last but by no means least, exciting white paper, marriageable men, blue collar workers, a theme, Fracking. a theme Sarah Cliff has presented before. Yes, but a theme we have we have more on it, a modern love story, if you will. So this is a paper from uh, Melissa Kearney at the University of Maryland, who does a lot of really interesting research on um, fertility and um, childbearing. She's done some great stuff. You might have probably seen those covered in a lot of places about 16 and pregnant, and there have been some pushback to that. But anyways, she's she's really interesting economist on this topic. And one of the things she's exploring is lately we've seen this rise in childbearing outside of wedlock. And I think some of the stats she cites here show that in 2014, 40% of all births in the U.S. were to an unmarried mother. Among non-college educated mothers, it's 62%. And there's a thesis out there from, you know, economists and sociologists who study this, that one of the things that's going on is that you have less marriage material men. You you haven't seen earnings going up quickly, and you there are less men who you think, like, I'm going to settle down and have, like, a solid future with that guy. So, you know, instead, one of the reactions you see to that is kind of childbearing outside of wedlock, where people say, well, this guy's good enough for now, and we'll have a kid, and, like, 
maybe we'll get married, maybe we won't. And so she explores in this paper in a really interesting way what happens when you get like a an influx of marriage material men. You have guys who are suddenly earning a lot more. Do people start settling into traditional marriages and having babies there? And one thing she's able to kind of um, use as a natural experiment is the fracking broom, which increased wages for a lot of non-college educated men. So you see this increase in wages and the thing that kind of the headline finding here is that you see an increase in births, but they're not concentrated within marriage. You see an increase in out-of-wedlock births, an increase in um, in-wedlock births. You see more people deciding to have babies as or, or maybe not deciding. More people are having babies as um, you get more money into these communities, but you're not seeing this kind of movement to get married. And it's different from research that was done in the kind of 1980s, 1970s coal boom in Appalachia, where you saw, you know, an increase in earnings, an increase in marriage, and an increase in having children within marriage. And it suggests that maybe this thesis was right, maybe it wasn't, maybe the reason people started having more kids out of wedlock was that marriage, stable marriage didn't feel like an option. But now that having kids out of wedlock has become, you know, pretty normal, that it doesn't seem like things move back in that direction when you have this influx of kind of men who are earning more. The possible stability that comes along with those earnings doesn't seem to suggest, oh, we should get married. It suggests we should have kids, it seems. But the idea that, you know, people also want to get married before taking that step, it seems like this to me suggests like a possible you know shift in that attitude. I'm excited about this paper because I have never felt that the marriageable men wages marriage link <laughs> hypothesis. It makes no sense to me on a theoretical level. And I've been very disappointed to see a lot of empirical backing for it. <laughs> um, so it's always good to see like a new updated study that agrees with what I think the conclusion should be rather than. It's always we, good to confirm we, your biases. I mean, we, we talked previously on the weeds. There was a good, a good, I think it was one of these endless author Dorn yeah. papers about China trade um, showing that like, like where local manufacturing industries were harder hit, um, you had less marriage. So the the nice thing about these fracking boom ladies, right, is that see children are very expensive. So it makes sense to have fewer children when you have less money, but more children when you have more money. Uh, being married is a cost savings versus being single. So there's no particular reason it should have the response that previous empirical research has shown it in fact does have. I I, I, right. I do I, I don't want to be like totally in denial about this, but but I think I feel like with 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 the new this this new research, it's like people have figured it out. Um, so I'm <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that. I also should probably we should someday weeds about actual fracking because I I'm never sure if fracking is good or not. That's a whole other weeds. Yeah, I, th- I think Brad Plumer's convinced me that it's good if regulated, like most things. Ooh, <laughs> good if regulated. Uh, good slogan. Good slogan. Um, I thought it was really interesting that if you dig into the guts of this paper, she excludes Montana and North Dakota, which saw sort of the biggest fracking booms, and she does this uh, along with her co-author because. 
uh, there's been a lot of migration to these areas. And she, she wanted to measure sort of what happens when there's a sudden shock to existing men in an area's wages rather than sort of men who come in. But it, it did remind me of the, there's a whole slew of stories. There's one in the New York Times. There's one in Vice in like 2013 about how like Williston, North Dakota, the center of this boom, has just become a like dystopian nightmare town for women that it, it has like we don't know the exact gender ratio because like this the boom all happened since the census but it's something like 70 30 80 20 men to women and so there's been like huge importation of sex workers uh which lecture whatever uh and more ominously like a lot of increase in domestic violence and sexual violence and like all these sort of interviews with women in this area being like men keep like coming up and offering me money if I sleep with them or like I'm constant. I've asked out like seven times a day. It's just like a horrible place to be a woman. I can't go out at night anymore. And there, there are ways where like if an economic boom like changes the gender balance of a town, it changes the marriage market in ways that like seem like they deter marriage slash make the remaining women want to get the hell away from there as fast as they can unless like there's money to be made right one of the interesting things in this paper is that you don't see a rise among women's earnings so the earnings that go up for men it's not just the men who are in the fracking um, industry it's men who work outside of it the idea is you have an economic boom throughout the whole city but you don't actually see women's wages rising um, along with men's wages which I think like suggests a kind of scary power dynamic that develops in these places of, you know, where you have men who are increasingly earning more, women who are kind of staying at the same place. And I think that's like another kind of weird dynamic happening here. I think one of the, the questions I'm interested in coming out of this research is like how if you have people, you know, deciding to have more kids when they have more money, because kids tend to be quite expensive. How much does it matter? You know, how much does the institution of marriage matter in that context? Um, are the kids who grow up, you know, let's say, you're since you're seeing the rise in both in wedlock and out of wedlock birth in these places, are the kids who grow up in out of wedlock births, you know, the fracking boom, baby boom, are they going to have different outcomes from the kids who are born into a, a married couple? And I think that's a really interesting question that you know as marriage as childbearing out of wedlock becomes more common do we see some like convergence between the outcomes because right now we know the outcomes for kids who are born into a married couple tend to be better but you know as as it becomes more of an option and it seems more normal to do i'm curious to see like whether that outcome divide if that changes at all i mean i I do think the sort of excluded uh, Great Plains fracking boom is relevant here, though, if only because in the in the schematic whereby depressing male earnings, there's this kind of social conservative construct that's like floating around in the background of a lot of this research. And what that construct seems to me to posit is that if you have a really huge influx in male earnings and in male workers, tilting the gender ratio in favor. You know, so there's more men than women, but also men's earnings are skyrocketing. This is supposed to like give women all the sexual bargaining power. And they're gonna then like make these newly prosperous marriageable men like settle down and be model husbands. And then all of society is gonna be better and awesome. And that's there's this like 
weird nexus of like a vulgar Marxist take on family life with a hardcore social conservative view of like what the good life consists of that is, I think, in the backdrop of a lot of this like manufacturing decline is the root of all evils. And and what you saw in North Dakota is that like it doesn't work, work that way <laughs> at all. That like if some background cultural changes have just changed how family life and gender norms works, if you then radically tilt the balance of economic power back toward men, they just act like rich entitled assholes <laughs> rather than like poorer and assholes or whatever and there's no it's there's a reason in the research design that she's excluded those kinds of states and it still shows this function not working at all but like i I do think it's there's always a tension in like research between trying to design your clean study and like you're gonna just miss the biggest fracking boom because it's inconvenient for your data um but nobody looked at that situation was like aha north dakota has seen like a renaissance in like solid 1950s bourgeois virtues um and that itself is like a very significant finding all right Awesome. Okay, thanks, guys. This is uh, another another episode of the Weeds. Uh, th- thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer Bert Pinkerton. Uh, thanks to Dylan for for setting in. Um, you know, want to recommend a, a couple exciting audio products you may be interested in. Uh, Todd Vanderwerf's podcast. I think you're interesting. He sits down each week with uh, you know fascinating people from from the worlds of, of pop culture. Talks to them. It's a great show. It's very interesting. Even more important. If you love boring policy news, we are ramping up Weeds production to, to twice a week. I'm going to have uh, Yoki Driesen and, and Jennifer Williams from our foreign and national security team on with me on Friday. We are going to try to you know really understand the sort of implications of the, the chaos that Trump is fostering in the uh, security apparatus in the United States, unless some really nutty new news happens between now and Friday morning. Um, Last but by no means least, we've got a new uh, SoundCloud account for the weeds. It is soundcloud.com slash vox hyphen the hyphen weeds. Uh, find us there. Find us uh, wherever fine uh, podcasts are found. Uh, and we will see you uh, in a couple days.